0: Second Timothy chapter number two. And uh I want to say tonight that I'm thankful to the Lord for my Bible. I'm thankful for the Bible. Thankful that we have God's word. Imagine how much God loves us that He gave us His Word. And we can read it, man, in a world that just is just ever moving under our feet, it seems like. The only thing that is uh worse than today will be tomorrow, it feels like sometimes. Uh, I'm glad to know that the Bible never changes, glad to know God's Word never changes, God never changes, and uh, we can count on Him, and I'm just thankful tonight for the Bible. 2 Timothy chapter number 2 tonight, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1, we'll read down to verse number 5, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 1, uh, the Holy Ghost says, Thou therefore, my Son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. And if a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned, except he strive lawfully. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. What a blessing to be in your house. Pray that you'd be with those that are sick, Lord. Give them strength. Give them health. Raise them up. Lord, I want to thank you for those that are here tonight. I praise you for their presence, their faithfulness. Lord, I thank you for those that are in the parking lot tonight. That uh, They've made an effort even when it's not easy and they're here tonight meeting with us. And I just pray that you'd take your word, that you'd use it in our hearts and lives, minister to us, give us peace tonight. But Lord, I pray also that you would do the the hard work of uh, of digging into our life, dealing with us after your will and according to your word, that we might be made more into the image of Christ, and we'll be sure to thank you for what's accomplished, Lord. We love you, and we ask it in Jesus' name, Amen. Now, over the past couple Wednesday nights, we've been walking through Second Timothy chapter number two, and we have been examining the various ways that the Apostle Paul describes uh, the station and life of a believer. For instance, in verse number 1, we read it tonight, but notice it with me. Verse 1, he says, Thou therefore my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So here he likens the believer to a son or to a daughter. And while, let me say tonight, that everybody that knows God in righteousness, they know Him through the new birth, and they are a child of God, uh, they are a son or a daughter of God. God has no grandchildren, amen? He only has children. If you've either been born again or you've not been born again. Uh, what the Apostle Paul's talking about here, though I think it touches on that, and I don't think that needs to be dismissed, I think more explicitly he's talking about spiritual heritage. And he's calling Timothy his son. But now we know that Paul was not Timothy's uh, biological father because Paul was a Jew. He was in Hebrew of Hebrews. We learn from the book of Acts that Timothy's father was a Greek. So what did Paul mean when he said, my son? Well, he meant his son in the faith. And that's even interesting to note that if I read my Bible correctly in the book of Acts, it sure looks like Timothy knew the Lord as his Savior before Paul even met him. So he's not even just talking about soul winning, but he's talking about having invested, poured himself into the life of Timothy to be a spiritual influence. And he's telling Timothy, there's some things that you owe to me. And he says this, in another place, in regards to Timothy's mother and grandmother who had been an influence in his life, he's saying you have a spiritual heritage that you have a responsibility to. Let me say tonight, I've got a spiritual heritage that I have a responsibility to. Now, I was raised in a Christian home and I praise the Lord for it, but even if you weren't raised in a Christian home, somewhere along the line, a child of God took an interest in you, poured themselves into your life, prayed for you, shared the gospel with you, and the Holy Ghost used that to save you by God's grace. Don't think for one moment that you can just walk away from that. Man, that's a debt that we owe for the rest of our lives. So he describes the believer as a son. Verse 3, he says, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And so he likens the believer to someone enlisted in the military, a soldier uh, that has been called to a life of uh, training and privation and and, uh, military effort. And certainly we looked uh, you know a couple of weeks ago at how that reminds us of the believer and what the believer uh, experiences in their walk with Jesus Christ there is spiritual warfare it exists it's going on around us all the time uh, we don't see it only because we are not watching because we are not looking peter said that we ought to be sober and vigilant sober and vigilant you know what that means that means to be in a right mind frame and to be on the lookout watching because our adversary the devil walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Truth is, there's spiritual warfare going on all around us. And if we would open our eyes to that and begin to, to interpret and see the world through the prism of what God's trying to do through a matter and what the devil's trying to do through a matter, we would see vividly that spiritual warfare around us. Ain't nothing just happens to you and me. Uh, listen, I that ain't nothing just happens to anybody. I mean, God's omniscient and om, omnipotent and omnipresent. Don't nothing just happen to somebody just because. But especially for a child of God, uh, don't nothing just happen just because. Everything happens for a reason. So you ought to look around and when when events take place and matters in life, you ought to say, you know, Lord, what are you wanting to do in my life through this? What do you wanting to teach me? What do you want to show me? What do you want to elicit from my life? And by the same token, it'd be wise to look at it and say, now, how's the devil? trying to get a foothold in my life. I found this, that the vast majority of people, the devil don't sneak in under the crack in the door in their life. They leave the front door wide open. And that's how he gets in. It's a lack of vigilance in most people's lives. So he likens us to a soldier. Verse 6, he says, the husbandman that laboreth must be first partaker of the fruits. He likens the believer to a sower with seed, a farmer that is planting and investing something into the ground and expecting a return from it. Verse number 15, and I've got to hasten if I want to preach a message tonight. Verse 15 says, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So here he likens the believer to a skilled laborer. And particularly as regards this precious book that we hold in our hand tonight, the word of God. We ought to approach the study of God's word like a skilled craftsman approaches their trade and their craft. You know, one of the things that is the mark of a skilled craftsman they won't walk away till they got it right. They won't walk away till they got it right. You know, part of our problem in studying the Word of God is we walk away before we've got it right. I'm not talking about changing the Word of God, but I'm talking about our understanding of the truth of the Word of God. Uh We, you know, we're, we're over here trying to carve at it with a chainsaw like in fellas up in the Smokies, you know, instead of like a master craftsman uh, that is meticulous. Of course, I say that and boys can do more than I can. And even if they couldn't, I wouldn't insult a man with a chainsaw, but... You know, uh, what I'm saying is, we need to look at it and say, I'm not walking away from the Word of God till I know what God says. That's what's important tonight. Not what I say. Not what you say. What does God's Word say? That's the only thing that matters tonight. My opinion means nothing. Your opinion means nothing. God's Word means everything. I was thinking, uh, as they were talking about the uh, the family in that cult, man, that's heartbreaking. That's tragic. And, uh, you know... That people have called Independent Baptists, you know, cultish before. Uh, Usually, it's people that got mad at some preacher that said something. But I, you, uh, one of the things that gives me comfort, I know we don't have a cult. I, I I have no doubt we don't have a cult. You know how I know? Because nobody does anything I tell them to do. Amen. For us to be a cult, you'd have to listen to me, you know. But we don't have a cult tonight. We've got a church. Amen. All right, verse 21, he says this, if a man therefore purge himself from these, he's talking about unrighteous, wicked things and matters in life. He says he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. Here he describes the believer as a sanctified vessel. You know, that's what your life and mine is. It's an empty vessel for God to pour in it what he wants and to pour out of it what he wants. There again, that goes back to that providence of God, that God is not doing anything by accident in our life. You probably have things in your life you're not happy about. I've got things in my life I'm not happy about. Not very many of them, praise the Lord. But things I wish were different, things that I want to see changed. I really don't know how anybody could live in this world the way it is unless they're a far better Christian than you or me and not feel like there's some things in their life that they wish was different, was changed, and this and that. But you know, we need to be reminded, it's not us pouring into our lives, it's God pouring into our lives. What has He poured into our lives? And now likewise, how does He expect us to pour that out into the life of somebody else. And then verse 24, very simple, says this, the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patience. So he likens the believer to a servant. And Listen, that's what being a child of God, being a Christian. I won't say being a child of God. There's lots of people that are a child of God that don't have a servant's heart, but if you want to be a Christian, talking about being like Jesus Christ, it's going to mean being a servant. Christ spent His entire earthly ministry, and really, we're sort of narrow when we say that, because if we look at it, I mean, from before time began until the moment when time will cease to be counted, the Lord Jesus has been serving others, always. Uh, He is the Word by which creation was created. He didn't create creation for Him to live in, He was already living. He created it for us to live in. He created it for us to exist. And on and on we could go all throughout the Old Testament. You know, he's likened in the Old Testament. And he's described as the angel of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? He's the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. He's God. But he made himself of no reputation. did he? And that's not true just when he became flesh. But it was even true in the Old Testament. He made himself of no reputation. He put himself in the place of a servant and did the bidding of his heavenly Father. Now, if you and I are going to look like Jesus we're going to look like servants. That's what it's going. To, we're not going to look like superstars. We're going to look like servants. So much of Christianity today is image obsessed. Uh it's just it's all about being able to project something to other people. It it really is a lot more akin to snake oil salesmen. Uh the other day and I ain't going to name names. I I mean I guess I will, but I but I would. I'd say it that way. I won't, but I would. Uh what I'm saying, come and ask me later. I'll tell you who I'm talking about. And uh but I was thinking about a famous preacher that I don't have a very high opinion of. And um, who, who's, who's real well-known, evangelist, pastor, and all over the place. And I had a dream the other And this guy, he's real greasy. He's real slimy. And I had a dream the other night. This is weird now. I had a dream that this guy ran a Christian carnival. I had a dream about that. And you know what I found in my dream? I actually kind of liked the guy. You know why? Because he was admitting he was a snake oil salesman. And so I was okay with that in my dream. I, I went to the Christian Carnival Fred and enjoyed myself in the dream and I thought, I like this guy a lot better. If he quit pretending to be a, an old time man of God and just go ahead and admit he's running a carnival, I'd be fine with him. Amen. We'd be best friends. But, and yeah, it's exactly right. It's exactly right. But no, listen, I in a day of, of celebrity Christianity, image obsessed, bunch of superstars, you know what the local church needs? It needs service. You know what the cause of Christ needs? It needs service. You know what pulpits need? Need servants. That's what it needs. We're going to be like Jesus Christ. We're going to be a servant. But now what about our message tonight? There's a verse we skipped over as we move through this early on. We read it in the, in the reading of the text, but I want you to notice it with me. One verse, very simple, and I want to give you a few thoughts and we'll be done tonight. Verse number five, the Word of God says this, If a man also strive for masters, yet is he not crowned, except he strive lawfully. Here, the believer is likened not to a son, a soldier, a sower, a skilled laborer, a sanctified vessel, or a servant, but rather he is likened unto a sprinter. Now, I use that word for the sake of alliteration really explicitly in this passage. You could be an athlete of any kind. But the Apostle Paul seemed to enjoy likening the experience of a believer to athletes more generally and then more specifically to a person that's running a race. When the apostle Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Ghost, pinned this down, it was during uh, some of the glory years of, of Rome and uh, during a time when the Olympic Games uh, were at some of their height and, uh, you know, all sorts of, of uh, you know, public spectacles of, of athletes and athletics was, was a prominent thing. And it would almost appear as though Paul was somebody that wishes he was more active than he was. As he got older, his health failed him. But probably as a young man, he seems to have enjoyed if not participating, at least observing some of these contests and, and you know, uh, competitions himself because he, he would very often liken the life of a believer uh, to running a race or to performing in some sort of athletic competition. And here he uses that same illustration. What is the overall theme of what he is trying to say here? I think what he is trying to say, if I could sum it up, and then I'm going to preach my message, would be this. As we live the Christian life, we ought to be in it to win it, and we ought to be doing it the right way. We ought to be in it to win it, and we ought to be doing it the right way. Notice the word he used here. He says, if a man also strive for masters. Now that word masteries, it literally means for the top prize or for first place, or to have a mastery of whatever endeavor, whatever pursuit that a man is engaged in. Can I say to you tonight, part of our problem is we're strolling for mediocrity instead of striving for mastery. We're just sort of milling our way through the Christian life and allowing life to happen to us instead of actively seeking to make our life count for Jesus Christ. He says we ought to strive for mastery, but then he says this, a man can strive for masteries, but it will not mean anything unless he strives lawfully. So here he's talking about reaching a place of high honor and praise, reaching the very pinnacle of what our capability is. But he's talking about doing it in a way that is lawful, doing it in the right way. So what can we learn from this verse? I want you to notice three things that we find here. Number one, I want you to think with me about the race that our life is. This, again, is not the only place in 1 Corinthians, Paul likens the Christian life to a race and If you believe, like I did, that the Apostle Paul penned the book of Hebrews, and uh, likewise in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, he likens the Christian life to a race. But what exactly is it about life, or the Christian life particularly, that is like a race? What was it that made, and I understand the Holy Ghost inspired this, but he didn't do it in opposition to Paul's mind and intellect and personality. He did it in harmony with those things. So what was it that drew Paul's attention to the idea of a race and it reminded him of the Christian life? There's probably a lot of things, but there's three things that jumped out to me. Number one, the fact that a race, and this is true of any athletic competition, but a race in particular, it involves a set duration. In other words, with a race, there's a beginning line and there's an ending line. But whatever it may be, in another place, Paul likens the Christian experience to boxing, to uh The old-timey word was pugilism. I think I like the word boxing a little better. But a person wrestling or fighting or something to that effect, And in that case, it's not a finish line and an end line, but it is a start time and an end time. But whatever it is, whatever, and it might be a short sprint or it might be a long marathon, but any competition, it involves a beginning point and an end point. You know, that's true for your life and mine. The Bible says in the book of Job, chapter 7, verse 1, Is there not an appointed time to man upon earth? Are not his days also like the days of an hireling? I want to read that again. We need to hear that. I'm not preaching on sickness and viruses and anything like that tonight, but I just think we need to read it again and be reminded that there is an appointed time to man upon earth. Uh, God knows when we're born. God knows when we're going to die. Uh, now that don't mean we should be dumb. It doesn't mean we should be cavalier. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be cautious. But we also shouldn't have to run around skittish and scared half to death all the time because God's in control of this thing and He has appointed a time uh, when we're to die. Is there not an appointed time to man upon earth? Are not His days also like the days of an hireling? Later on in the book of Job, verse fourteen, Job says this famous passage: "says A uh, man that is born of a woman is of few days and full of trouble." He cometh forth like a flower and is cut down. He fleeth also as a shadow and continueth not. Down in verse number five, he says, seeing his days are determined, the number of his months are with thee. Thou hast appointed his bounds that he cannot pass. And I don't have this in my notes, but I want to read to you in the book of uh, Psalms, chapter number 90, uh, the Bible says, if I can find it down through here, I may have to, Move on before I can. It says in verse number 4, For a thousand years in thy sight are, but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night, thou carryest them away as with a the flood. There is as a sleep in the morning. They are like grass which groweth up. In the morning it flourisheth, and groweth up. In the evening it is cut down and withereth. For we are consumed by thine anger, and by thy wrath are we troubled. It says down in verse number 9, For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. The days of our years are threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is there strength labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. You say, Preacher, what are you getting at tonight? I'm saying this, there's a beginning to our life, there's an end to our life, and what's going to matter is what we do in the interval. That's what's going to matter. The psalmist says this in verse number 12 of that same chapter. He says, so because of this, because we, we've been born and we're going to die and we only have so much time in this life, He says, so teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. The truth is, as James says, your life and mine is like a vapor. It's here for a moment, then it passeth away. We're very keenly aware of the notion of death right now. It's talked about relentlessly. Can't figure out why society's so gloomy, you know. All we see when we turn on the TV is how many folks has died. (laughs) Wonder wonder why everybody's depressed nowadays, you know. Uh, The truth is people have always died and there's people dying now and Every, every one of them is tragic. And I don't mean to minimize it, but I'm saying this has been the way of all flesh ever since Adam ate of the fruit in the garden. That we have a beginning time and we have an end time. And in some ways, it probably helps us that it presses onto our consciousness the reality of this. Because here's the truth. You and I are not going to live in this flesh forever. We've only got so much time. So the question is, what are we going to do with What are we going to do with it? One of the most profound things I ever heard a man say is Jesus is coming soon, so we better get busy. I know that seems simplistic. I know that seems elementary. But how few of us really grab hold of those words and tether them to our soul. Jesus is coming soon. Death, if Jesus doesn't come first, death will take us. And what we do in this life is the only opportunity we have to live for Jesus Christ. So a race involves a set duration. That probably reminded him a little bit of the Christian life. Then I thought about this. A a race, at least a good race, always involves a strong opposition. It's really not of much interest if it's not a close race. I enjoy, one of the things I, I enjoy in football, I can watch any football game when they used to have football many, many moons ago. I could watch any football game if it was close. I couldn't watch any game, don't matter what it was, if it wasn't close. It didn't interest me. It just bored me If it wasn't close, that's why I never watched Alabama football. They beat everybody by 600 points. I wasn't interested in it. That's why I didn't watch UT football is everybody beat us by 600 points. And so I'd have to watch something where it is close. The thing that makes it compelling is strong opposition. But you know, in your life and mine, we too are faced day in and day out with strong opposition. There have been times in my life, and I bet you'd say the same, where it's felt neck and neck with the opponents and the forces that want to cause us to give up on Jesus Christ and to not live for Him. If you don't think you're going to face opposition living for Christ, you're probably not living for Christ. If you live for Christ, there will be opposition that tries to stop you from living for Him. Uh, What kind of opposition do we have? Well, I I named two things. And I I, this sort of goes with the racing thing. There's kind of two reasons, two enemies, two opponents that a racer... Might have now the first is the foe, the person running in the lane next to him. Now here's one of the problems in Christianity is we thought that the person in the pew next to us is the person in the lane next to us, and that's not the truth. The person we're racing against is not the person that sits in the pew nearest. Uh, the a person we're racing with is is not the church uh, down the street or across town. That's not who we're racing against. Uh, who we're racing against is our foe, our adversary, the one that seeks to derail us, to stop us. From finishing our race for Jesus Christ. Well, who's that? That's the devil. He wants to stop you from living for Jesus Christ. He is our adversary. The Bible warns us against the wiles of the devil. Tells us to give no place to the devil. Uh, He's seeking every opportunity he can to stop you. And it's not a matter just simply of slowing you down. If he can get you to not finish the race, he'll be content. He'll be content. I mentioned this earlier, and I don't want to dwell on it because I sort of preached all around it, but Ephesians 6, 11, and 12 warns us to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers, of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Don't be naive. The devil wants to stop you from living for him. He's not going to let you come to church without opposition. He's not going to let you pray without opposition. He's not going to let you study your Bible without opposition. He's not going to let you lead your family without opposition. He's not going to let you go to work and have testimony without opposition. He will try to stop you. He doesn't have the wherewithal to do it unless we give him the wherewithal. So often we allow him to. So there's the foe. A person's racing. One of the ways he could lose that race is somebody could run past him run through the ribbon before he does. But here's how I'd lose the race. It wouldn't be somebody would outrun me. It'd be I'd trip and fall on my face before I ever got about six feet. <laughs> and I thought to myself, you know, a runner's worst enemy can be the person in the lane next to him, but sometimes it can be his own self. If he's not running with his feet under control and with focus, it can be himself. And you know, that's true of the Christian life as well. Uh, one of our greatest enemies is, of course, our foe, the devil, but the other is is us. It's the flesh, and you know it's interesting. Paul actually zeroed in on this thought when he talked in another place about a a race. He says in First Corinthians chapter nine, verse twenty four, "Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things." Now, what does it mean to be temperate? It means to have yourself, your inhibitions, and or your your ambitions and your desires and your impulses and your lusts, having those tempered under control. Years ago, whenever uh, the prohibition was going on, they had what they called the temperance movement. What it was was just it was against alcohol. It was saying that people needed to be temperate, and not participate in in alcohol, and that's called a biblical position. Somebody say Amen there, but. But they called it the temperance movement. Well, he says, be temperate in all things. Have control over yourself in all things. He said, now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertain, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it unto subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Paul said, you know, it is a danger that someone else would come and derail my walk with Christ. But he said, one of the greatest dangers I have is that I derail it myself. And how many people's lives have been wrecked because they've allowed themselves to get in their own way and have allowed their own flesh to prevent them from being able to do more for the Lord Jesus Christ? Can I tell you this? The Bible says that God's given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. You and I have everything we need to live for Christ. If we don't live for Christ, it's not because someone won't let us. It's because we have chosen not to. Wherever we're at in our spiritual development, and this is true for me, and it, I promise you, it grieves me. It, it ought to grieve you for your own sake and for your own self to realize that whatever, wherever we're at in our spiritual development, we're there because that's where we want to be. That's where we want to be. We have as much of God as we want. No more No less. God said, draw nigh unto me and I'll draw nigh unto you. However close we are to him, we're there because that's where we want to be. So it involves a strong opposition. But then I thought about this. If you're going to run a race, and this is why I don't do it, it involves a strenuous exertion. It's not easy. I don't run as a general rule. I'd run if I was chased, maybe, depending on how well armed I was or how small the person was chasing me. But I don't have a lot of interest in running. I've never understood people that run as a hobby. In my, my opinion, you run when you've done something wrong. That's what the Bible says. The wicked flee when no man pursueth. The righteous are as bold as a lion. And I just figure it's a good testimony to not run. Amen? Uh, I'm not a runner, uh, as you, <laughs> as you can tell. Uh, but, you know, in a race, whatever it might be, uh, one of the reasons, in fact, that people get involved with and you'll see people driving around, you you If you're like me and you're lazy and fat, you probably didn't know until someone told you, but you'll see, you'll see cars with these stickers on them that'll say like 26.3. You ever seen those? Like 26 dot period decimal point, whatever. 26.3. 12.4. You ever seen those on the back of a car before? Do you know what they are? There's a reason most of you don't know what they are. Because those are marathon distances. And they give out those stickers when a person has passed, uh, you know, has ran a certain length of marathons. So why, father, so ain't none on your car or mine. And I saw one the other day. It said 0.0. I thought that's the one I need to get. I don't know. That, that probably comes free in a bag of Doritos or something. I don't know. But, um, but, you know, they do that because it's a great badge of accomplishment that a person has gone the distance. And people that have trained and have spent their time, they want, to, they want to show how much work they've put into it. You know, if a race is to be won, it's going to involve strenuous exertion. I thought about what Paul says in Hebrews 12, 1-4. He says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now listen to this next phrase. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood striving against sin. What he's saying is this, that it's gonna, it's gonna take some effort to run this race. The Lord Jesus, He was the author and the finisher of our faith. He ran the race before we ran the race. And what He's doing is saying, now look to Him and all the exertion, all of the effort that He invested into running that race. And what it ought to do is cause us to count ourselves fortunate and blessed that we've not had to go through what He went through. But Paul's saying all that to say, listen, this thing of it being difficult to live the Christian life, that's not a bug, that's a feature. That's part of the Christian experience. We talked about this last week when we talked about being a soldier. Being a soldier doesn't just involve hardship. It's pretty much all hardship. That's what being a soldier is. And in the same way, if you and I are to live for Jesus Christ, we need to understand it's going to involve difficulty. There's going to be times we're going to have to get up and go when we don't feel like going. There's going to be times when we're going to have to give when we don't think that we've got it. There's going to be times when we're going to have to stand up and witness when we don't think we've got the words and we don't think we've got the boldness. There's going to be times when we have to love people when we don't think they deserve being loved and whenever we don't think we have the wherewithal to love them. I'm saying this thing of Christianity is meant to run in opposition to our flesh. It's not a problem. It's the natural pattern and course of it. So here I see the race. Now, the rest of my sermon ain't going to be that long, so don't get discouraged. I told you I was going to give you three thoughts. That was the first one, but it was the longest one. So we see the race here. If a man also strive for mastery, we ought to be trying to win this thing. And What I mean by that is giving our best for Jesus Christ. But then we see the reward. It says, yet is he not crowned, except he strive lawfully. And that implies that if he does strive lawfully, he is crowned. Nowhere does it say he has to come in first to be crowned. It merely says he has to strive and that he has to strive lawfully. In other words, if we'll give everything we have to living for Jesus Christ, and if we'll do it in the way Christ expects and desires and demands from us, then it doesn't matter where we finish relative to anyone else. We'll receive whatever crown is appropriate for how we've lived our lives. You know there are five crowns mentioned in the New Testament, and I won't read all the passages, but I'll give you the references in first corinthians nine twenty five which we read a moment ago. Uh, we have the incorruptible crown it's given for those that give their life in pursuit of serving and living for the Lord in First uh, Thessalonians chapter two, the crown of rejoicing is mentioned in verses nineteen and twenty, and that's the crown that we enjoy with those that we've won to Jesus Christ one day when we're in the presence of the Lord in 2nd Timothy 4 7 through 8 there is the crown of righteousness that's given to all those that love is appearing not just with their lips but with their life can I remind you that when Paul says that I am going to read this one he says in verse 7 I fought a good fight I finished my course I've kept the faith those three things henceforth because I've done those there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love His appearing. In other words, Paul wasn't just saying, I love His appearing because I say I love His appearing. He's saying the way that you know I love His appearing is because I've fought a good fight. It's because I've finished my course. It's because I've kept the faith. The Lord listens far more to our life than He does to our lips. And He wants the praise of our lips, but only in as much as they they sing in harmony with the praise of our life. So we have the the crown of righteousness. James 1.12, the man that endures temptation, he's promised uh, the crown of life. And then in 1 Peter 5, we're told about the crown of glory given to those that lead in a Christ-like and honoring way. So there's all these crowns that are mentioned in the Word of God. And I believe these are literal, explicit crowns. You might say, preacher, what do I want a crown for? and What would I use it for in heaven? Well, we're told of a scene in the book of Revelation where those that are washed in the blood of Christ when they're in heaven, they're casting their crowns at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be empty-handed that day. I want to have something, not because He needs money or He needs a crown or He needs any of those, but because those represent all of the life that I've lived for Him, what I've done for Him. And I want to be able to take it and lay it at His feet And say, Lord, you're worthy of this and so much more, but this is what I've done for thee. So what do these crowns mean? And I I thought really more distinctly, not just about these explicit five crowns, but what a crown is. Why do you give a man a crown? Uh, We in modern day Olympic games, we give people medals, gold and silver and bronze medals. Uh, but what was it significant of? The Greek word stephanos, it was talking about the little laurel that you'd often see in Greek statues that a man would be wearing around his head. It wouldn't be a gaudy, gem-encrusted thing, but it would actually, uh, just be, this is why Paul calls it a corruptible crown. It would be just merely some, some laurel, uh, you know, some, uh, you know, uh, leaves and, and everything that is, that they put around their head, and it was something that faded away. And Paul was saying they do it for that, but we do it for an incorruptible crown. That doesn't fade away. But what did that mean? And I thought about three things. Let me just give them to you at survey style, if that's okay. Uh, number one, I would say this. What does a crown represent? Number one, it represents acknowledgement. The crown is given in recognition of the participant's effort. Now, I don't, I'm not talking about a participation trophy, but I'm saying part of what a crown is given for is to acknowledge that that person has invested themselves in that endeavor. You know, it's a reminder to me that God sees our effort. He does. Even if nobody else sees it, God sees it. The greatest Christians in the world do more for the eyes of God than the eyes of man ever see. Uh, Those that are willing to labor and not care whether anyone ever notices, whether anyone ever sees, whether anyone ever claps, whether anyone's ever pleased, uh, they're the ones that God is is honored by. And I would say this, the fact that a crown is mentioned, it, it reminds me, of acknowledgement. He acknowledges what we do. He sees when no one else does. Number two, I think it represents proof. Now, there's a lot of things. You ever say this to your kid uh, when they're acting up? You say, you're trying to get attention, but I'm about to give you the kind of attention you're not looking for. You ever said that to your kid? I've already said it, so I know you've said it. yours. You might have said it to mine. I don't know. But, uh, you know, acknowledgement is one thing, but I don't just want to be acknowledged. I want to be acknowledged for the right thing. I want it to be approved in the eyes of God. And that's really what a crown's given. You don't give a crown. It's not like an ugly Christmas sweater competition. You give a crown for doing a bad job. You give a crown for doing a good job. You give a trophy for doing a good job. And the fact that God rewards what we've done for Him is a reminder uh, that God is pleased with our effort for Him if it's done in the right way for the right reason. Uh, God is truly, genuinely honored and pleased and gladdened by a life that's lived for Him. You know, John talks about the fact that we ought to be doing all things well-pleasing in His sight. Aren't you glad God can be pleased? I've known a lot of people that can't be pleased. If you give them a $100 bill, they'd complain it wasn't crisp enough. But God can be pleased by our life. Isn't that good? I mean, he can, he can look at our life and if we're doing it in the right way, in the right spirit, He can say, I'm pleased with their life. And then I would say this, that it represents acclamation. The crown is given as a token of honor and praise. And that's really what a crown's for, right? This is the reason that Paul says in First Corinthians 9 that all run, but only one obtains the prize. He's saying there's only one winner in a race. And he's not implying that only one person can win in the Christian life, or however you'd want to say it, only one person can be a successful Christian. But he's saying you and I ought to run like there's only one prize to win. And if we don't give it our all, we'll regret the fact that we did not Leave everything out there on the field, out there on the track, trying to do our best for Jesus Christ. Uh, So he's acknowledging the fact that a crown's given to give honor and praise. And, you know, the Lord Jesus, not only is He pleased when we live for Him, but there's going to come a day that He's going to acclaim it. The Bible says the things that are done secretly will one, be, one day be done out in the open. The Bible says that if we if we pray to our Father in secret, then He'll reward us openly before all men. One day, God will make known everything that needs to be made known. So I see the reward here. And then finally, and man, this is a whole other message. Y'all got two more hours? No, you don't. Don't lie to me. Well, some of y'all do, I guess, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but uh I see here the race and I, I see the the, the reward uh, that's given to it, but then I want you to notice the regulations. Notice the last phrase. He says accept. Accept. He's putting down some some conditions here. Uh some some things that are required. He he says, accept he strive lawfully. Now, Paul doesn't go into great detail about what that means. He is giving this to, although he is younger than Paul, he's a seasoned man of God by the time that Paul's writing to Timothy. And he knows what that Timothy knows what he means when he says this. When he says lawfully, he's saying in accordance with the commands of his word. Can I say this? That what we do for Jesus Christ matters. But how we do what we do for Jesus Christ matters too. This is at the core of the breakdown in philosophy of so much of modern Christianity. It, it, it's, it's rude, pragmatic materialism. Try to pack people in pews, doesn't matter what it takes to get them there. Now, listen, don't misunderstand me. I'd love to see every pew in this building filled. I really would. It'd be a wonderful thing. And I, and I'm proud of who we got tonight. I'm not, I ain't poor mouthed. If you're out in the parking lot, you ought to see it in here. There's 2,000 people in this room. So I, am not, I, am pleased. Don't take it as me compl- But I'm saying this tonight. Listen, uh, it wouldn't, it wouldn't satisfy me, but more importantly, it wouldn't satisfy God if we got people in these pews but had to give up everything Christ-like about our church to do it. Wouldn't be worth it. Wouldn't be worth it. It's not just that we strive, you see. We gotta strive lawfully. You know why? Because His opinion matters more than anyone else's opinion. So, Paul says you gotta follow the rules in the race, in the competition. And I just jotted down these three thoughts very quickly. I thought about these rules, these regulations. What I'm talking about tonight is the Word of God. And I'm reminded that in a race, the rules that are given, they are defined. They are not abstract. They are defined. There are certain regulations that are set down and they, they are given with exactitude because the people running the race want folks to know where they stand and what is required. Can I say this tonight? God didn't give us his word because he is bored and wanted to meddle in our lives. He gave us his word because he wants us to know what to do. And they're defined. It's exact. It's not abstract. God's Word, listen, it lays out distinctly what God expects out of us. I thought about the fact that they're defined. Number two, I thought about the fact that they're deliberate. They're purposeful. The statues of God's Word, they're not flippant or casual or meaningless. They're meant for our good and for God's glory. The rules that are given in a race, for instance, are given for a number of reasons. One, to keep the racers safe. Number two, to make a fair race so that winning means something. We live in a society today where they give out trophies for everything, so winning doesn't mean anything anymore. But the rules are there so that winning means something, so that it is, it is firm, so that it is, it is meaningful and purposeful. And you know, it, when we abstract and relative whatever, relativize, there's your good bushism, when we take all the meaning from God's Word, what do we have left? When all of it is just a relative, abstract, live how you want, when you want, the way you want. Why even have a Bible in the first place? Why would God even give us His Word if it was given for our interpretation and for our pleasure instead of for our good and His glory? In other words, we ought to take the Word of God literally, we ought to rightly divide it dispensationally, but we ought to take it literally and we ought to recognize that it's given for a purpose. And then I would say this, the the statutes are demanded. The regulations that are given, they are demanded. If a person doesn't follow the rules, it disqualifies them. You know what that means? They ran the race, but it doesn't go in the books. That's what it means to be disqualified, right? You ran the race, but it didn't go in the books. How many times have we throughout sports history seen occasions like this where a person was caught using drugs or where a person was caught maybe using some sort of manipulated material uh, in their sport or whatever it might have been and so everything they did during that season, when they were under that influence or when they were using that item or whatever it was, is struck from the books, and it's almost like it never happened. Yeah, Lance Armstrong, that's right. And uh man, a million others we could say. You know, it's a reminder to me that one of these days the books are gonna be opened. There's gonna be a judgment. And you say, oh no, preacher, I'm a Christian. Yes, you're going to be at the beam of seat. You're going to be at the judgment seat. You're going to be face-to-face with Jesus Christ to give an account for how you've lived your life. And I just wonder sometimes if there won't be a lot of our life that we're going to get there and find out what's struck from the book because we did it in an unlawful way. We did it for our glory, for our pleasure, for our desire, for our ambition. Or we did it, but we didn't do it in accordance of the truth of God's Word. And what will it mean? Well, it will mean that we ran the race. It'll mean when it all comes down to it, it'll be struck from the book. won't matter. won't mean anything when that day comes. You see, God's Word, these are not just recommendations. These are requirements. These are regulations. And they're not given because God's bored. They're given because He loves us and He desires for your life and mine to be to the glory of Christ and to be to our good. He wants the best for us. So here's my question tonight in closing. How are you and I running our race? Are we running it with all of our passion, all of our effort? Are we pouring ourselves into living for Jesus Christ? Are, 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 we just, are we sort of strolling in mediocrity or are we striving for mastery? Are we floating down and just sort of getting by and still in cruise control? Or have we made our mind up to do everything we can to serve Christ? You may be striving for mastery, but here's the second question. Are you doing it lawfully? Are you living your life in accordance with the truth of God's Word? You can put forth all the effort in the world. If you're not doing it God's way, it's meaningless. You think God's honored by the Jehovah's Witnesses? You think He's honored by the Mormons? You think He's honored by you know the, the the Muslims that are? I mean, you want to talk about passion? You want to talk about fervor? They have passion. They have fervor. Man, they're running a race, but they're not running God's race. So I'm asking you tonight: Are you striving lawfully? Are you living your life with all of your heart in accordance with God's word? Let's so bow together tonight as the musician comes to play. And I want to give you an opportunity to deal with the Lord. He may have spoken to your heart tonight. I I trust that he did. And if he did, the best thing you could do is go ahead and just meet him down at this altar and talk with him. He wouldn't speak to you for no reason. God never does anything for no reason. So if he dealt with you about a matter in your life, don't give the devil another day of victory in that thing. Go ahead and put it before the Lord. Open your heart to him. Speak with him. Talk with him. Lay it before him. And let that matter be dealt with in the grace of God. Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify your Son. We ask it in Jesus' name.